This is Podco Media Networks. Hello, and welcome to episode four of the Peace Love Plants podcast. Today's guest is an ultra-endurance athlete by the name of Robbie Ballinger. You may have heard of him. Maybe you haven't, but you're about to. You see, Robbie recently accomplished a feat of Herculean proportions. Seriously, he ran across the entire United States of America, Los Angeles to New York, 3,175 miles in 75 days. Oh, I failed to mention that he's also 100% plant-based. So this run, yeah, completely fueled by plants. Now you're thinking to yourself, that's an amazing accomplishment. I, I agree. And that's why I'm humbled to have Robbie as a guest. But there's more to the story. This extraordinary run is not only fueled by plants, it's fueled by a desire for positive change. All the while, helping others to find their reason for change. In this first episode of a two-part interview, Robbie and I talk about his upbringing in the Appalachian Mountains, losing a parent at a young age, and his time living in both the U.S. Virgin Islands and Alaska. So let's get dialed in and listen to the story of how Robbie Ballinger's purpose has surfaced. Robbie Ballinger, welcome to Peace Love Plants, my friend. How are you today? I'm doing well. It's good to talk with you. You know, it's interesting. I, uh, I first learned about you through social media. I can't even remember what page it was on, but you were blowing up the social media channels. And then I watched your episode with Rich Roll, and I remember thinking to myself, wow, this guy is absolutely fascinating. Everyone needs to hear his story. I mean, it just resonated with me on so many levels, from your childhood, which we'll dive into, to your years in the hospitality industry, your newfound life and plant-based living. It's, it's really quite the journey, to be honest with you. But let's set the table here. On this first episode, I'd really like to dive into your early life and some of the experiences that helped shape your path leading up to your decision to run across the United States, good or bad. So let's reverse engineer this thing and talk about who Robbie Ballinger is. Let's start off with the exciting stuff, man. Where are you from and where were you born? I grew up in uh, Northeast Georgia, foothills of the Appalachians. Yeah, that's where I spent the majority of my childhood traveling between there and Dallas, Texas, where my mom's family was. So yeah, foundation in the South. In the South, Southern guy. <laughs> I mountain bike a lot, which, which mm-hmm. isn't saying much because I, I live in Florida, the flattest state in the nation. But we would go up to North Georgia, Blue Ridge area. Is that kind of the area, the pocket you lived? Yeah, very close. A little bit further east than Blue Ridge, but um, that's definitely home. That was actually where I ran my first ultramarathon as well, was in Blue Ridge. So I'm very familiar with the area. What's it on the Appalachian Trail by chance? Parts of it. It hit it a little bit. Yeah, it, was, it started right outside of Dahlonega. It was a 50-miler with tons of elevation. Everybody thinks that everything on the West Coast is where the mountains are, but those Appalachians will eat you up. They're brutal. They're yeah. brutal. We'll, we'll <laughs> learn about those in a little while for sure. <laughs> yeah. So what was it like growing up in North Georgia? I mean, for people that haven't been there, help paint the picture. I know what it's like. It's gorgeous. I mean, it is truly awe-inspiring, some of those mountains. What was it like for you as a kid growing up there? It was a great place to grow up. Um, I think my mom chose the little town I grew up in intentionally for it to be a small town. Everybody knew everyone for the most part. It was really slow paced and a lot of a beautiful place to grow up for sure. Yeah, just small town living. I think the county I grew up in had 35,000 people as I was a kid. Wow. So it was, um, it was a good place to get to roam around in the woods and feel free. I enjoyed my time there. I've I've definitely separated myself from the area as I grew older for no no real negative reasons other than wanderlust and heading <laughs> further west. <laughs> yeah, I love that. 
Were you always into running? Did you play sports as a kid? Do you have a running background? Kind of set the table for me how your yeah. youth was as far as sports. As far as sports as a kid, mainly team sports, I excelled in football, played baseball, basketball, all the things growing up. And by the time I got to high school, realized that where I had the most potential as an athlete and what seemed to be most interesting to me was football. I actually played on the offensive line. So was really? a little bit a little bit thicker of a kid than I am now. I was still pretty small for <laughs> for the position, but um yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. I enjoyed the camaraderie, the team aspect of it and I've found myself really over the years coming through the ranks and becoming a leader on the team. And it really yeah, really enjoyed it. I think the foundation of perseverance and accountability really came from my high school football coaches. They were positive influences on my life for sure. Offensive line. You know, I wouldn't have guessed that. I tagged you yeah. as a wide receiver, maybe even a quarterback. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, it was a different time and place. I, I, I hit, the, <laughs> hit the weights a lot, and um, yeah, it was a different time. <laughs> what were you weighing back then? I mean, were you, you had to be bigger than you are now, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, now, you know, being a runner, I'm about 175. I'd say in high school, about 210. Uh, I think yeah. I bench pressed like 420 pounds. I don't think I could bench press 120. 50 now, but <laughs> definitely a different time. Different training for sure. So you mentioned your mom is from Texas. Her family's there. Yeah, they're there. She, uh, all, both sides of my family were from Georgia. And then as okay. um, later on, when she was a young adult, her family moved to Texas. She stayed in Georgia and started um, a family of my father. Uh, they um, got married quite young and had me, uh, I think my mother was 22, and by twenty time she was 24, when I was two years old, my father actually passed away. So the majority of my childhood was spent just uh, with my mother, single mother raising me. And she did a really, I think, a really stand-up job. She, I never felt as though I did without. She was actually like the coach of my t-ball team. She, she did it all. She really, she put me first. And I'd never felt as though there was a lack of a father. I think I found that later in life, which yeah. then, you know, we can get into later, kind of was one of the the reasons I decided to take on this run. But yeah, I had a really good childhood and uh, a lot of support from my mom, my uh, grandparents, both my grandfathers really played a big role in filling the shoes of a father figure. And I owe a lot to the three of them for sure. That's fascinating. I, um, I too lost a parent at a young age. My mother passed when I was four. And then uh, when I was 19, my father passed as well. So I, I completely can understand where you're coming from when, when other family kind of comes in and I don't want to say fills the gap because it never truly gets filled, but really rallies the troops, right? And, yeah. and, and does help out a lot. I won't get into specifics on that. That's obviously a very personal topic, but how did that shape who you are as a man now? Do you reflect on that moment in, in life sometimes and go, that really took a trajectory this way for me? And a positive, I'm sure. You mean? Yeah. I mean, it's been a big evolution for me, the process of dealing with, with that death and that lack of my father being a part of my life. And I think it was something that hit me later in life, post-adolescence, even young adulthood. I think there became a moment where I, I had kind of expanded my world, started to grow and do my own thing. And then I was left with this big question of what, who am I as a man? What does that mean? And now in retrospect, looking back, I think I gravitated towards a couple of key male role models in my life, whether they be significantly older, like as a kid, as a grandfather, but then later on, you know, just friends and it's interesting to see now how I, I clung to certain people and, and what they were embodying as a man. And a lot of those were positive, some were negative, and I needed to sift through all of those. 
I surpassed my father when I was 27. I'm 35 now. And that really hit me really hard. There was this moment of realizing I could let go of the man I was trying to become and emulating the, the lore of my father and who I had been told he was. And I was then free to kind of explore who I wanted to be. And kind of a backstory on that, my father, he was, from what I understand, a really passionate wild guy. He was a lot of fun. He was young when he passed. And he, a lot of the lore and what I was told about him was how hard he partied and how much fun him and his friends had and all of those things, which were interesting. But it, looking back in retrospect, it set me up for my 20s were quite rambunctious. I had a really good time, but they took their toll. I, I partied hard. And that was what I at the time saw as what it meant to be a man. Mm-hmm. And then about the time where I was starting to gain more responsibilities in my career, I realized that that lifestyle wasn't going to really lead to positive outcomes. So that was when I started this journey of figuring out another way. And through that, running became a big part of it. That's fascinating. You know, when you said that you uh, you hit that age where you had surpassed your father's life. I, mm. My mom passed when she was 39, and I'm, I'm 43 now, so I can completely relate. It was such a surreal feeling for me, like, wow, I am now walking this earth longer than my mother did. Mm -hmm. And it's just the thoughts that go through your mind of what if or how am I going to live now? And it almost was like a rebirth of my spirit in some ways. Like you touched on, you just now there's this new life that you're no longer fitting into, you know, what your parent was. For sure. That's fascinating. So your father passed, you grow up in Georgia. Let's talk about post-Georgia living. Now, you're in your, we're in your 20s now, right? I read somewhere or may have listened somewhere that you lived in the Virgin Islands or even Alaska. Is that true? Yeah. So post, uh, well, midway through college, I wasn't, I wasn't doing much of the going to school part. I was definitely back <laughs> to that party thing. I was having a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but and then in that too, I wasn't really, I, was, I wasn't identifying with the community I was around. I was in Athens, Georgia, and all my friends from high school were there. And I was just feeling as though there was more there was something different I wanted to explore. And one thing led to another. I ended up in Alaska for what was supposed to be a summer away and then go back to college when I got back. And it just stuck. I really enjoyed, it was really eclectic. Where I was living was definitely a transient community. And I met people from all over the world while I was there. Most of the people living there were from the States or Puerto Rico and Bulgaria, randomly. and um, <laughs> That's not what you think when you think Alaska. Yeah, I didn't even know. Puerto Rico. Bul- I didn't know Bulgaria was a country. I had never heard of it. <laughs> so I made it through that summer there, which was really um, a real transformative summer. I uh, experienced a lot of new things. I started to get healthy again. I had gained a lot of weight in college. I think I was up, we were talking about weight earlier. I think it was up to like 235. And wow. by the time I left that summer, I was down to like 190. And a lot of that was just due to hiking and the separation from fast food. I was forced into eating a pretty regimented meal plan that was provided by the um, company I was working for. So it changed a lot of things. But through that, too, I also saw that there was this transient life that would allow me to travel and see new things. And I met some people while I was living up there who were doing their summers in Alaska and their winters in the Virgin Islands. So I followed them down to the Virgin Islands, planned on staying four months and stayed two and a half years. So that was <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely a big um, time in my life where I learned a lot about myself and who I wanted to be compared to who I was due to situationally for where I grew up and the people around. And I started to put myself first and 
have a mind of my own, I guess, in that time period. And um, from there, I moved to Austin, Texas, where I was at for about 10 years. So Alaska to the Virgin Islands. I mean, I can't think of anything more of a drastic change than that. That had to yeah. be some culture shock, huh? Yeah. Interestingly, the people that show up in both places are quite similar. Definitely people that like to live on the fringe and are looking for adventure. But the setting definitely was much different. You know, of course, Alaska mountains. I was in Denali National Park. So Man. lots of mountains around and then went down to the Virgin Islands where it was turquoise water and sailboats. <laughs> Living the dream. It was a lot of fun. For sure. <laughs> so let's move into the restaurant industry phase of this. I know that in both of those places you did that, but I grew up in the industry. I was, you know, working in restaurants. My brother owned restaurants and I was in them and, uh, at age 12, believe it or not. I don't think you could do that these days. They'd probably yeah. arrest you. But uh, <laughs> he did it and I, I was cleaning grease traps at age 12. But uh, were you back of the house, front of the house, a little bit of both? Mainly front, yeah. So I all started in high school. I worked at a little country club in our hometown. And then as I started to travel, it definitely looked to be the easiest way to travel and have a job. So when I moved to Alaska, I worked at a little turn and burn restaurant, Virgin Islands. It was a beautiful little restaurant on the beach. Had a really good time there. And so moving to Austin, I still hadn't decided that it was a career path. It was just a way to get by. And then moving to Austin, it, the, the scene was much more elevated. And I started to learn a lot about wine and more elevated cuisine. And through that, in that time, I realized I was really good at it. I was really good at hosting people and playing the front of the house role of creating community and good times. We just brought, brought good times to the places where I was working. So it was just this evolution. Over time, I, I started to make my way up through the ranks. And where I really made my mark, I think, on the Austin food scene was a little pizzeria called Bufalina, a Neapolitan pizzeria that I opened with a friend, Stephen Dilly. He's the main proprietor. But through that, I became partners and oversaw operations for what became two locations and commissary kitchen. We went from six employees to 45 in two and a half years. So wow. there was a lot of growth. And I was kind of at the head of all of that. And it was a really beautiful time. I enjoyed it. Through that, I met my now fiance. She worked there as well. And yeah, it was a great time in my life. But it's also something anyone that spent time in the restaurant industry will know. It, it's very taxing. And it takes all your bandwidth. And eventually I kind of burn out and decided I wanted to look for something else. It is a grind. I mean, the restaurant business, anybody that's worked in it, you and I both have, it is a grind. It's a work hard, party harder mentality, but everyone answers the bell, right? I mean, I can remember mm -hmm. showing up to shifts some days where I really had no business showing up to a shift. Absolutely. <laughs> but I mean, uh, you know, things happen, you grow out of that. So it sounds like you, you, you hit that phase where you wanted, you wanted something deep or something more of a purpose-filled mission is am i am i this is what i sense is that am i right on that you want to do something a little bigger yeah absolutely it was the running came first it was something i used as a way to keep me accountable to the job and i found that it it hit a lot of the same things that kind of the partying world can hit if that makes any sense you, you get your endorphins going yeah yeah and, but it was a positive form of that i feel like yeah. running is something beautiful that gives you a lot and partying, drinking, and doing a bunch of drugs kind of depletes you. So it filled that hole for me. And that was kind of the start of it, of it. And I used running as a measure of accountability as I made my way through those five or six years at the pizzeria. And then we made the decision to move up to Denver, Colorado for my fiance to go to nursing school. And I was just done with the restaurants. I wanted to find something new. Mm -hmm. And in that process, I spent some time, went back down to the Virgin Islands, just post Hurricane Irma and Maria. 
to help oh, yeah. with the um, relief effort. The community I lived in was completely devastated. And getting down there, I, I hit a couple of things that really resonated with me. And one was everybody's stuff, all the things that people had worked for were gone. They were strewn all over the place. And it just showed how trivial working for material gain was. And I had been doing that for, life, for as long as I could remember, just grinding and working really hard to get ahead. And that getting ahead, I saw could be blown to smithereens with a storm. And that, that resonated with me. And then also seeing the devastation caused by a storm that was much bigger than it should have been. And I really equated a lot of that to global warming and climate change. So coming through that, I really, yeah, I think I gained a desire to find a more altruistic kind of approach to life and wanted to help and thought that I wanted to put my efforts towards something in environmentalism. And then that became the question of what that was, which, you know, kind of, I think not many people would come to the conclusion to run across the country was the way you were going to help with that. But that was where I ended up. But I imagine that, and we'll get into this, I don't want to dive too deep into the run right now, but I mean, having that purpose-filled mission and a real cause that you stood for really resonated with people as you did that run. And and again, we'll get there, but that's just, to me, that's fascinating because you never know where your purpose will surface and yours came in the form of a run. Yeah. And the point is, is you were, you were aware enough that it was there. You heard the message. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about your decision to run across the United States and, and what it takes to prepare for something like this. I mean, it's just, it's epic. I mean, you didn't just wake up one day. I mean, I know you touched on it and decide to do such an epic run and the catalyst you touched on. And I'm sure there's many more. Can you help paint a little bit of a picture of some of those moments in life that really impacted you? Uh, maybe it, for me, for example, uh, when I went completely plant-based, uh, it was many, many years of things going on. And then one day I heard this song by an artist named Mike Love. Uh-huh. And it was the soundtrack to Earthlings. And it literally broke me down. I said, that's it. I looked at my wife. I go, I'm done. Never again. Yeah. And I haven't. Was there a moment like that for you at all? Yeah, I think for me, it was it was a really long transition. I'd say the first thing that got me into the thought about the implications of the foods we consume for ourselves, for the environment, for everything, would have been when I was 19 or 20 and I watched Super Size Me. It had just come out. Oh. And at that point, I just didn't know that there, I didn't even know the fast food was bad for me. And I think yeah. that reality stuck with me. And it resurfaced many years later when I was contemplating this run and the reality that I live in a pretty aware community of the foods we consumed by the time I came to this conclusion, but I was able to look back and remember when how naive I was at one point and the reality that a lot of people out there are naive to the implications of the food they consume. So that, that was where it all started. And then throughout the years of being in the restaurant industry, as I made my way through it, my choices in food evolved and the cleaner my diet became the more I felt I was growing spiritually. And I just saw that over time, this was a lot of this was in retrospect, but it led to that final decision to go plant-based. And for me, the initial reasons for the plant-based transition were environmental and performance. I had read uh, Mm -hmm. Scott Jurek's book, Eat Run, and was running a lot and competing in some ultra marathons. And I thought I'd give it a try because, I mean, he's the best of the best. And in that, as I started sifting through the data and everything I was, I could find about it, it became clear that as an individual going plant-based is one of the biggest things you can do to help 
curb global emissions and help with the environmental crisis in front of us. But it all started, yeah, when I was 19 years old with Supersize Me. Fast forward 15 years later was when it, the roots really took hold and I, I did something with that initial knowledge. That's fascinating how so many things along your path can form ahead to this, this awakening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cognitive dissonance. I had it for many years. I was asleep. And it's, yeah. I see people that are uh, still eating the fast food or don't realize what they can do to make a difference in the environment, their own health by eating animal products. And I have to constantly remind myself, you weren't born like this, man. You, you evolved into this. Be patient and be kind and share your story in a positive manner so that others can have that seed planted. And then maybe down the road, they'll think back, right? And I'm sure you've had moments like that too. Yeah, and that was a big, you know, I think very similar to what you said there. For me was the realization that, you know, I ended up in this position where I'm, you know, now plant-based, taking on a run across the country to advocate for the advantages of these things. And a lot of the time along the way, I had to remind myself that just to be that catalyst for change and maybe someone I talked to along the way, it would take 15 years, but they would make a big change in their life in the way that that simple catalyst of a film did for me 15 years before. So yeah, having faith that by being positive and being a good example and not being judgmental to others, that you may not always see the results right away or ever, but you will change people's lives for the positive. No doubt. No doubt. So. Let's talk a little bit about the training for this run. I mean, listen, I've thought about doing some crazy things like for, but let let me put this in context. Crazy for me would be like 50 miles on my bike. And I know that that's nothing, but I feel pretty good 30 miles in, right? I'm like, I got this, you know? And then there's 20 miles left and there's a lot of self-talk going on, man, for me (laughs) at my level right now. And, you know, to just to finish, uh-huh. What kind of training went in for this? I mean, you weren't always a runner. I mean, you mentioned that you were a high school athlete in football, but that's not cross country. How did you prepare? Yeah, so from um, the running all started again about, I guess, about seven years ago now when uh, the restaurants, uh, the pizzerias were kind of really coming into their own. And I found running as a stress reliever. And it started with a two and a half mile run around Austin with my now fiance. And I made it the two and a half miles and had to get a cab home. It was all I had in me, but I, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, from there, it just, it progressed quite fast to uh, marathons and into ultras. I think it was by two years after that first run, I did my first 50 miler. So it really, it really stuck with me. It was something I enjoyed. I never really wanted to run fast. I just wanted to keep going further. So that was kind of where I was at when we moved up here to Denver was, 50 miler I'd done and I think two 50 milers a couple 50 k's and then made this decision I was like I want to run across the country I want to do it as fast as I possibly can and I decided on what was a healthy safe amount of mileage for me to do per day and then added 10 miles to it so that I would really make sure to challenge myself and then for that year I'd had a year to plan from when I decided to take on the run and I broke it up into two three parts the first part being I wanted to make sure I could run every day so I ran 10 miles every day, taking every 15th day off, did that for quite a while, three months, three or four months. And then I upped it to run every day, but instead of 70 miles a week, I would run about 110 to 120. Did that for another three or four months. And then the last part was I stacked a bunch of ultras on top of each other. I was running 50 miles and 100Ks back to back every two weeks for a couple of months. And that was to kind of normalize the distance and just make sure that 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 50 mile distance was something I felt comfortable with. And that was how I prepared for it physically. It was just a lot of time on my feet, a lot of miles, 
running when I was tired, running when the weather was bad, just really leathering the skin and just yeah, beginning to where nothing would phase me as far as a big shock to the system. The system was, was ready to run, but going from 115 mile weeks to 315 the first week, was definitely a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, and mentally preparing yourself. Because, I mean, I woke up this morning with the full intent to ride my bike. I, I promise you. <laughs> yeah. But it was raining, and I'm like, ah, yeah. tomorrow, right? <laughs> so, I mean, those weren't options. You're like, ah, it's sleeting outside. Got to run. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of that is, you know, I think there's a lot of negative things we could talk about, about social media and things of that nature. But one positive, a lot of positives came out of it for me in this run. And one being is, as soon as I put it out to the world that I was going to do this run, I became accountable to that goal. And yeah. so that was what kept me moving every day in that year of training was I've said, I'm going to do this. I have to do it. And I need to be as prepared as possible for it. And I think that's where setting goals is a really important aspect of doing anything in life, like finding something you want to do, creating a plan. And then with that goal, it creates accountability. You know, right now I don't really have a big goal in mind. So I'm a lot less accountable to my training and until one comes up i know it won't I, i'll have those mornings too where it's like ah, it's cold out i'm not going to do that i've already done three thousand i got nothing to prove <laughs> yeah <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so it's march 12th 2019 hmm. and you're at home in denver yeah. and the van and the trailer pull up to pick you up what is going through your mind yeah um <laughs> I wish it would have been that easy, but unfortunately, or not unfortunately, I mean, it was just, it, I, the van was in far front of the house for the week before as I prepared oh. and I packed it and I made sure everything was in place and did all of the logistics to get okay, it to that point. Let yeah. me frame it. You walk out, it's time to get into the van. Yeah, it's time to get into the van. It was surreal when you spend a year focusing on something and going through all of the hurdles and the setbacks and everything to get to that point. But then you sit there and you have this beautifully wrapped van and camper that you've leveraged everything you had to make happen. And it's go, it's just game time. It's time to do it. But there was definitely nervousness. There was an, an, a realization that the minute I hit, you know, that first step out of Huntington Beach, that it was the pain cave was on its way and it was going to be tunnel vision for the next 75 days as I made my way across the country. But it, it was surreal. It was exactly where I wanted to be. I'd never worked so hard for something in my life or felt so strong in my convictions that it was where I was supposed to be and what I was supposed to be doing. That's beautiful. I love it. So now it's March 16th, and this is where we're going to end this episode <laughs> and pick back up in the final episode next week. Uh, Rabu, will you come back next week and, and share some stories from your yeah, 75 absolutely. days on the road? running yeah, across we'll, get, the we'll, get, we'll get into the miles. <laughs> we'll get into the miles. All right, everybody. So join us next week where we're going to talk about all 75 days. Well, most of them that Robbie spent on the road running across the United States of America. Inspired? Now hold on. Before you start lacing up your running shoes and take off on a run of your own, be sure to join Robbie and I next week because we dive into his purpose-fueled run across the United States. The challenges, the people he met, the mission, and more. Until then, be safe out there running. Peace, love, and plans. <laughs>